Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. Okay, today I want to talk about eschatology. And at this point, I can imagine a couple of different reactions, which I want to anticipate and lay to rest gently as we begin. I can imagine some of you thinking, well, this sounds a little bit esoteric, not exactly the kind of thing that belongs in the third slot of a What We Believe series of podcasts. We've been thinking about that overview of the whole of human history, what God is doing from Genesis to Revelation. Then we thought last time about the doctrine of salvation. All those things seem pretty important. What are we now doing examining an area of theology which I can hardly pronounce? It seems like we've slightly gone off the rails, doesn't it? And examining something that is really just for theology nerds. That's not the case. I want to show you in a few minutes that it's not the case. Another reaction I can imagine is that really what we're going to be concerned with is a whole bunch of esoteric debates concerning uh, the imagery and the symbolism in various chapters of the book of Revelation uh, and some Christian graphic novels designed to depict those events in not quite fictional form. Well, uh, that's not what we're going to be talking about either. I want to show you today that uh, eschatology is actually a really significant, indeed central aspect of Christian theology. And despite the fact that it's got itself something of a reputation for being uh, esoteric, and for theology nerds only. It's actually really important theologically and very practically for our life as a church and for Christian families and so on and so forth. These are things we'll come to in future episodes. So let's just kick off with a couple of definitions just to clear out some of the debris and then we'll jump in and I'm going to give you a biblical picture of Christian eschatology and then that will lead the way to some kind of practical implications at the end and then in future episodes. What eschatology means, first of all, is the doctrine of the last things. That's literally what the word means. Uh, the Greek word eschatos, from which we get eschatology, means last or final. And therefore, eschatology is normally thought of as being concerned exclusively with those things that are going to happen at the end of this period of history, before Christ returns and just after Christ returns. So um, the return of Christ, the last judgment, uh, death, uh, resurrection, heaven, hell, that kind of thing. And those issues are part of Christian eschatology. Christian eschatology does consider those issues, but it does not do so in isolation. A lot of mistakes uh, arise in people's eschatological thinking when they try to think about those issues in isolation, divorced from the whole of the rest of human history. And that's really how eschatology ought to be approached. Eschatology shouldn't be thought of just as the Bible's teaching about what's going to happen at the end, but rather as how the Bible's teaching about the whole of human history climaxes in what's going to happen at the end. Can you see the difference? The difference is that we want to recognize things that are going to happen in the future, eschatological things, final things, last things, are the culmination of things that have happened in our past. We're living somewhere in the middle of history. And so we need to think about our past and what God's done in the past, what he said about the future in the past, so that we can understand what we are to anticipate in our present and in our future. So, in other words, eschatology is about the last things, but as part of an overall picture of the whole of human history. Secondly, let's just um, uh, place in its proper perspective uh, the debates that sometimes uh, take place and dominate the landscape between um, 
different views on the so-called millennium. If you look at um, uh, Revelation 20, uh, you find reference to a thousand-year period of time in Revelation uh, chapter 20, verse 2, during which Satan is bound, cast into a pit, and unable to deceive the nations any longer. And that thousand-year period of time, which uh, is sometimes understood as a literal thousand years, but ought to be understood as a figurative thousand years, is sometimes called the millennium. And sometimes eschatological discussion is dominated by different views on when this millennium takes place in relation to the return of Christ. So uh, pre-millennials think that Christ will return before this thousand years, and post-millennials, of which I'm one, and I'm going to show you why in a second, think that this thousand-year period is a figurative thousand years which occurs before the return of Christ in glory. And Amen millennials think that the millennium has a lot less significance actually in structuring history. But what tends to happen is you get debates between all these kinds of things. Uh, our dispensationalist friends are pre-millennial. Dispensationalism is a form of pre-millennialism. And what sometimes happens is people get so preoccupied with that debate, they end up focusing very narrowly on a small number of biblical passages. Uh, the book of Revelation, perhaps more broadly, but often just Revelation 20, a few of the bits and pieces in uh, Paul's letters to the Thessalonians and so on. And people forget to zoom out and see the big picture. And if you zoom out and see the big picture, as I've been showing you previously when we looked at the doctrine of salvation, if you zoom out and see the big picture, things start to fall into place. And it will no longer appear that the person standing in front of you or the person you're listening to on this podcast is advocating just one uh, slightly less popular than normal millennial view. It will rather appear, as I'm going to argue that it should be uh, understood, that what I'm showing you is simply how the Bible depicts the whole of human history. And that's what I want to turn to now. In summary, the way that Scripture depicts the whole of human history is that God's King, the Lord Jesus Christ, has been enthroned, having been promised for generations past, and having been enthroned in the heavenly Zion, his reign, his kingdom here on earth will grow progressively and gradually over the generations until it comes to influence the whole world and all the structures within it prior to his return in glory. So that uh, at the end, the final things that happen will come after the world has, so to speak, become discipled by the church, has bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not necessarily that every single individual will be Christian, but that no part of human society will be untouched by God's work as it's grown and developed through the whole of scriptures, climaxed in Christ, and is now being worked out in and through the church in the world. Let me show you that as it develops throughout the scriptures. And as, as I do so, you'll very quickly see that this is retracing many of the steps we've uh, taken already, um, but it just shows how this picture powerfully enables us to see a great deal more than we might originally have realized. Just think back to Genesis 1, for example. God gave Adam and Eve a commission to fill the earth and subdue it. That is to say, he wanted to see the world filled with Adam and Eve's human descendants ruling over the world. In his place, so to speak, in, in God's presence, rather, uh, as his representatives, a, a world filled with people who are enjoying God's good creation, loving one another and honoring him. His plan was that the whole world would be filled with such people. 
There is no good biblical reason to think that that plan has been abandoned. Yeah, in Genesis 3, it took a sharp turn left, so to speak, uh, or a sharp turn right, depending on how you want to draw the map. But it was not derailed. It took an unanticipated turn, unanticipated from our perspective, of course, not from God's. But there's no reason to think that God's plan that the world should be filled and subdued by godly men and women honoring him has been abandoned. You see this again in uh, Genesis 12. Think of the promise to Abraham. Um, His promise to Abraham involved uh, not just Abraham, but all the nations of the world being blessed through him. In in Genesis 12, verse 3, it says literally all the tribes of the land or or families of the earth. Really, the the word in um, chapter 12, verse 3 ought to be translated land. All the families of the land will be blessed. By the time you get to Genesis 22 and the promise is reiterated, not for the first time, after the not-quite-sacrifice of Isaac, um, the uh, Lord, or the angel of the Lord, the Lord through his angel, um, promises Abraham that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. You've gone from families or clans to nations. You've gone from the land to the earth. What's happened is that it has become clear by Genesis 22 that nations as nations national entities and the structures within them will in some way or other come to acknowledge Abraham's God as the living God and will shape their affairs accordingly. Now what happens in Israel's history is you start to see a seed of this planted during Israel's history. Um, And right from the beginning, the uh, vocation of the people of Israel was to be such that uh, all the people around them would see what a great God they have. They'd observe the righteous and godly laws of the people of Israel Uh, Think of Deuteronomy 4, for example, how Moses anticipates that um, the people would hear the law of God. Peoples around Israel would hear the law of God and say, surely this nation is a great and wise and understanding people. For what nation is there that has a God so near to them as the Lord? Their God is near to them. In other words, there'll be a note of admiration. The nation's looking on and wanting to have whatever it is that Israel's got. And in Israel's history, this is exactly what you see. (coughs) Pardon me. Uh, the high point of Israel's history during the monarchy is when this is most clearly seen, uh, where you think in First, uh, First Kings 10, uh, when all the kings of the nations around Israel come to King Solomon um, and they're blown away by what they see. The Queen of Sheba in particular, her visit is described in considerable detail. Um, the report was true. I heard in my own land of your words and your wisdom. I didn't believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. Behold, I didn't see the half of it. How happy your men must be who continually get busy to stand before you and see your wisdom. You see what's happening here is the nations are perceiving the wisdom of Israel's king and they want to have whatever it is that Israel's got. It's not clear precisely what relationship these people at this stage have with the Lord, but it's clear that they're doing the kind of thing which it was anticipated in the days of Abraham that the nations of the earth ought to see. They're coming and, so to speak, blessing the people of Israel, bringing spices and gold and gifts and so on as tribute to the Lord and to his Messiah, his king, uh, in this case, King Solomon. Now, the prophets uh, anticipate that uh, despite Israel's failure, uh, this vision for a world in which uh, God's chosen king stands as a light for all the nations will one day be fulfilled. Indeed, that's exactly the phrase that's used um, in one or two places. In Isaiah 49, for example, um, the, the servant of the Lord um, uh, is spoken of uh, um, 
uh, rather, let me forgive me. Let me say that again. The Lord um, uh, is speaking to Israel, uh, described as His servant. The character of the servant sort of shifts and changes during these chapters. Changes during these chapters of Isaiah. Um, and uh, verse five and six, um, uh, the Lord says, "It's too light a thing, too small a thing, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations." says the Lord, and my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Um, that text, of course, is quoted by Paul in the book of Acts when he's describing what he's doing preaching to the Gentiles uh, during the early years of the church. But you see this vision for uh, many nations coming to the people of God and seeking whatever it is that they've got. You get it in Isaiah chapter 2, um, where I'll just flick back to it and read it so I don't misquote it for you. Um, it's the mountain of the house of the Lord passage. Here it is. It's first uh, Isaiah two verse two. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the house of the, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and lifted up above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Notice that mountain is the place characteristically where people meet with God, like Mount Sinai or Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And this mountain is lifted up as the greatest of all the mountains. Uh, Mount Zion was actually a little bit smaller than the mountains around it. Uh, they saw that there were a couple of hundred feet above it but in Isaiah's vision it's as though that mountain is lifted up and all the nations see it and look on and wish they could go there and that's indeed what they decide to do verse 3 many peoples shall come and say come let's go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go the law and the word of God the word of the Lord from Jerusalem so here notice what you've got a picture of here you've got a picture in which the word of God goes out from the people of God to the nations of the world and nations conceived as nations, not just individual people, but uh, nations themselves prostrating themselves, so to speak, and seeking to hear from uh, the people of God and from their king. Uh, how it is that they should live and committing themselves to walk in the Lord's ways. Uh, you've got similar uh, imagery in the Psalms. Let me just highlight a few few of the Psalms for you. Um, they uh, It's mixed with a range of uh, other ways of uh, viewing uh, similar material. Uh, consider, for example, Psalm 2 where um, you've got, uh, well, it really breaks into four sections. In the first section, verses 1 to 3, um, the psalmist looks on at the nations of the world and wonders why they take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Why, are they, why do they choose to um, despise God? And then verses 4 to 6, uh, the Lord God who's enthroned in heaven laughs, saying, verse 6, he's installed his king on Zion, his holy hill. And so what you're seeing here probably is a, it's an enthronement psalm for King David, but certainly would have been relevant during Israel's monarchy. And it's relevant during the uh, exaltation of Christ as well. You've got the nations conspiring around uh, uh, the people of God. And God laughs. He thinks it's ridiculous, all these puny little nations standing, waving their puny little fists at the living God. He's installed his king on Zion, his holy hill. And he says to the king, you are my son, to have begotten you. Now he says, verse 8, ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession all the king has to do is to ask and he will receive the nations as his inheritance can we believe that jesus didn't ask of course not this is this psalm is quoted in relation to jesus in the new testament this is the psalm which describes what's happening in his coronation in his enthronement and exaltation to the right hand of god and so what are the nations supposed to do well uh, verse 12 kiss the son lest he be angry and you be destroyed in the way 
or in your way, sorry. Uh, the point being, to kiss the Son is a gesture of reverence to Jesus Christ, to the Son, the enthroned King of the living God. And so this is the challenge to the nations. The question is, what are they going to do? Are they going to bow before the Son, the King, uh, the anointed Messiah of the living God, the Lord Jesus Christ? Of course, the answer is, over time, gradually, yes. And that's what the Psalms also depict. Uh, Psalm 22 this is the, the psalm, again, which Jesus took on his own lips um, at uh, his crucifixion. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Jesus is, in the words of Karl Barth, enthroned upon the cross. Um, and so it looks like his mission is kind of over. This is, this is the, the destitution and ruin in which a king might end his reign in death. But no, 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 that's not what's going on. We know that's not what's going on. The, the, the cross is his enthronement. He's crowned even in death as he uh, gives his own life to save his people and, and inaugurate fully his kingdom in, well, in, uh, in preparation for his resurrection and ascension, which will fully inaugurate um, his kingdom. And the psalm perceives that as well. Look to the end of the psalm. Um, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations. Similar phrase to how Abraham described what's going to happen in his future. All the families of the nations shall worship before you for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Again, what you've got is this vision of a dramatic transition from the suffering of the Messiah like Christ at his crucifixion, like David uh, in his suffering, to the triumph of the Messiah as all the nations of the earth realize what they've done and turn in reverence and in faith to the living God and to his Messiah. You've got similar things in Psalm 47. You've got it in Psalm 72. Let me just read a bit of Psalm 72 for you. Um, it's one of my favorite Psalms. Um, this is... Um, actually a psalm of Solomon, maybe by Solomon or maybe for Solomon. Uh, and here you've got a picture of what the kingdom will be like. The, the kingdom of Christ is to be a kingdom of justice and righteousness where the poor are cared for and their, their cause is defended and uh, children of the needy are delivered and oppressors are crushed. That's the first four verses. Um, and incidentally, that gives us some pretty strong hints about how it is that the church as those who are heirs of the kingdom are supposed to exercise this rule or dominion that Christ has given us. Uh, but notice verse 8 down through 11. May he have dominion. This is speaking of Solomon and of Solomon's greater son. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. There is no other way of describing, sorry, no greater way of describing the full extent of the whole earth than this from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. Notice there that the word translated serve indicates not being unwillingly subjugated, but willingly offering their lives in worship of him. So in the prophets, in the Psalms, you've got similar things in the book of Daniel where, well, it's depicted slightly differently in the book of Daniel. Let me um, show you that for a moment because that's illuminating in its own way. Um, in Daniel, bear with me while I flick to it, in Daniel chapters 2 to 7, you have a, a long chiastic Aramaic section. So chapters 2 and 7 correspond, they Aramaic, which sort of sets them apart from the rest of the Hebrew text. Chapters 2 and 7 correspond to each other. And in each one, you've got a four-part vision. Chapter 2, you've got the four parts of the statue, head, chest and arms, middle and thighs, and then legs and feet. And then what happens is those represent four different kingdoms. And then a, a, another kingdom, 
kingdom, which is not like the rest. It's like a rock not cut out with human hands comes and smashes the feet and the statue comes crumbling down. Then the rock becomes a mountain and fills the whole earth. And the rock is the kingdom of God, which shatters all those kingdoms of men and grows to fill the world. So here you've got a picture of how the kingdom of Christ doesn't just entail, uh, so to speak, lots and lots and lots of individual people coming to the Lord, but rather uh, a corporate entity which fills and extends across the world, displacing ungodly competition to it. The the other kingdoms are uh, the uh, kingdoms of uh, uh, Babylon, Persia, um, uh, Alexandria in Greece and Rome that's normally how historians uh, break that down and the, you've got a similar vision well not similar kind of related vision the four beasts four beasts in chapter 7 uh, corresponding to the four parts of the statue in chapter 2 uh, and so clearly they're depicting something similar um, and in this case instead of a rock that smashes the uh, statue to pieces what you've got is the ancient of days standing and the son of man welcomed into his presence which is uh, connected in New Testament theology with the ascension and enthronement of the Lord Jesus Christ just as the son of man is welcomed into the presence of the ancient of days so the son of man is uh, welcomed into the presence of the living God. Jesus Christ is enthroned in heaven. And then what happens? Well, in verses 13 and 14, um, he's presented before the Lord and a kingdom is given him and all people's nations and languages should serve him and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which won't pass away and his kingdom is one that won't be destroyed. He will rule the nations. But then you look in the second half of the chapter at the interpretation and who is it who rules the nations? Well, it's verse 27, the kingdom and dominion and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey them so it's there in and through the church that the messiah the king the lord jesus christ exercises this rule over the nations is the church then has a responsibility of doing what psalm 72 says administering justice to the poor caring for the oppressed and so on and so forth Moving forward, turning to the New Testament, and we're going to move a little bit more quickly through this, but it'll still be worth pausing at one or two points. You find, uh, of course, the promises of um, the uh, Davidic kingship uh, in the past are connected with uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. You get this, for example, in Luke chapter 1, where the uh, angel Gabriel says that he'll be called the Son of the Most High Psalm 2, etc. Uh, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of David, of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. You see, what the angel is doing here is picking up all the imagery and therefore all the conceptual background from uh, the Old Testament theology of the reign of the king and imparting it to Christ, so to speak, saying Christ is the one in whom this is fulfilled. And here's where it gets kind of interesting because you start to see how we can anticipate this taking place in history. And you see this particularly in the parables of Jesus. I want to show you a couple of these. Because at this point, um, it's very tempting uh, for us to imagine that, well, if Christ has um, promised the rule over the nations to the church we jolly well ought to go and grab the nations by the scruff of the neck and give them a good shake ought we not to be agitating a little bit after all if we have an optimistic eschatology if we have a vision of history in which we're expecting the rule of christ to extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth we're not yet seeing that are we we're not seeing a united church uh, having significant influence in every nation of the world over the political and social instru institutions of our world 
And so the temptation is to imagine either that the plan has failed, which is where we end up heading into some mistaken and unbiblical eschatologies, or to imagine that we need to start shaking the tree a little bit and shake things up and we end up with a kind of hyper-activist or aggressive approach to bringing about the future or um, seeking to uh, extend the kingdom of Christ. Now what's interesting is that that really misses an important aspect of how Jesus teaches that his kingdom will grow. Jesus teaches specifically that the kingdom which he is already king over, which is growing in and through the church across the world, even today, grows gradually. And it's this emphasis I want to spend the last just few minutes uh, thinking about. Just think, for example, of um, the famous chapter full of parables, Matthew 13, um, and consider um, how the parables work. Jesus talks first, well, let's just think of the parable of the sower. Um, you know, the one that's four types of seed, uh, sowed on four different, well, one type of seed, sowed on four different types of soil. Um, and the disciples don't really understand it. Uh, Jesus explains that, uh, yeah, these four kinds of seed are uh, like the sower sowing the word, which is the seed is the word of God. And you've got seed falls on the path. Satan just snatches it away. Then you've got seed on rocky ground. You've got seed sown among thorns rocky ground is persecution takes it away um, thorns is the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of riches and so on those uh, choke the seed and it proves unfruitful then you've got this fourth kind of seed which lands on the good soil and eventually produces a magnificent miraculous crop 30 60 100 fold now anybody ever sown anything when you sow seed it takes time to grow you get a spectacular crop in the end, but there's not the slightest bit of sense in going out into your backyard and trying to, to dig down to find the seeds that you've sown 20 minutes previously and kind of grab the little sprout out of them and pull them out to hurry things along. One of the things we need to wrestle with and get to grips with in understanding biblical eschatology, in understanding our place in the world, is that the kingdom of Christ grows Gradually, You find another uh, example in the same chapter, a couple of examples, actually. The mustard seed. Uh, let me just read Matthew 13, 31 to 33. Um, Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants, becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests uh, in its branches. And he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Notice again, both of those images. Mustard seed that grows into a great tree. Leaven or sourdough, really. It's not actually yeast. It's kind of sourdough. Uh, they didn't have cultivated yeast back in the first century. Uh, or not much of it. They probably could have got some from beer, but probably this was sourdough. Um, it takes a long time. If you've ever made sourdough, it takes a really long time for the leaven to permeate the whole loaf. It's a gradual gradual process and in practical terms that means something very significant for us as we are seeking to see the kingdom of christ grow we should be seeking and expecting rather we should be expecting this to take a long time we should neither despair nor get frustrated if it seems to us that it's taking forever and a day for uh, our world to 
uh, grow in faithfulness and for people to come to Christ and for governments and nations to bow the knee to Christ. It may be another thousand generations. The Lord hasn't had a thousand generations yet in which to show faithfulness to his promises. Maybe it's going to take a thousand generations for the kingdom of Christ to grow gradually across the whole earth. Are we ready to wait that long? We need to be ready to wait that long if that's what it takes. And in the meantime, what we're called to is faithfulness. And the particular kind of faithfulness really needs to be reiterated to us again and again and again and again because it's so easy to forget it's basic christian discipleship stuff it's taking up your cross and following christ i'm just thinking about this this evening because as i record this i've been preparing for um uh, wednesday night bible study um where uh, taking up our cross is um depicted in a uh, particularly uh, potent way really I'm, we, we, we've got to Ephesians chapter 4 um, and here you've got, you've got a picture of Christ likeness really let me show you um, I therefore a prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called let's just think about that for a second what, what is the calling to which we've been called as the church crisis Ephesians 4 the calling to which we've been called is to rule the nations Daniel 7 like the kingdom uh, has been given to the church. The kingdom of the Son of Man is being ruled in and through believers and churches across the world. So what is the calling to which we have been called? Well, you might easily think it's a form of domination. And you could so easily go off the rails thinking in terms of that kind of range of conceptual imagery. Because how does verse 2 describe it? What is the what is it to live in keeping with the calling that we have it is with all humility and gentleness with patience bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace it is ongoing christ-like unity humility gentleness patience is these things which by which we show christ's life to the world by which we image christ in the world and it's in this way that we are to seek to serve christ so that over many 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 generations to come his kingdom gradually gradually grows okay so there's one other big area of eschatology well there's lots of other big areas of eschatology we've not talked about there's one theme that i've not touched on yet and this takes us just all the way back to Genesis. I want to leave you with this because this is going to be where we'll pick up next time. Uh, you notice way back in the promises to Abraham, and actually it's implicit also in the promises to Adam and Eve, that God promised to bless Abraham and his children. And it was through God blessing his people and their children that he would fulfill his promises. This is one of the crucial reasons why eschatology takes such a long time why the growth of the kingdom of christ takes such a long time why jesus doesn't just come back tomorrow but why he's waiting he's waiting for many generations to pass so that he has time to show blessing to individual christian families children grandchildren great-grandchildren and so on through the generations and what that ought to do is to shape our priorities quite radically so that when we think of christian kingdom activism the very first thing we think about is not political marches not voting not congress not capitol hill but our own families and the families of others within our church community 
and what God, we pray, has will do and has promised to do in and through those young people, the children in those families, and their children and their grandchildren down through the generations. That's what we'll pick up next time as we start to think about how to connect eschatology to the practical realities of family life. But I hope that's helpful. I think, think it's enough for now to be going on with. There's a bunch of biblical passages I've not mentioned. Didn't even talk about the Great Commission, but we'll talk about that another time. For now, uh, the Lord bless you, and see you next time. Mm-hmm.